Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. And here's your 30-second summary. Four sisters adventure through life in Civil War-era New England. They make the best of poverty in the absence of their father as they come of age and become the best little women that they can be. And then, one of them writes a novel about it that sells millions. The end. Let's talk about Louisa May Alcott. But first, let's drop her into history. In 1868, the first U.S. parade with floats took place during Mardi Gras in Mobile, Alabama. The refrigerator car and the stapler were both patented, and helium was first discovered. The military shogunate government ended in Japan, and the governing power was returned to the emperor. Cornell University opened in New York, and the first traffic lights were installed outside Westminster Palace in London. NAACP founder W.E.B. Du Bois, future and last Tsar Nicholas II of Russia, and composer Scott Joplin were all born. And in 1868, a coming-of-age novel about four sisters in Civil War-era New England called Little Women was first published. Louisa May Alcott was born on November 29, 1832, in Germantown, Pennsylvania, the second of the four surviving children of Amos Bronson Alcott and Abigail May Alcott. On her father's 33rd birthday, you'd think that would have created sort of a bond. You would. It did, one day a year. <laughs> Papa was from rural Connecticut and was a member of a mostly illiterate farming family who was lucky enough to have a mother who could teach him to read and write by drawing in charcoal on the floor of their house. Even when he could go to school, boys were needed at home for harvest and for planting. We talked about that in Laura Ingalls Wilder, that girls, this is very ironic, girls often got more education than boys did. Mm -hmm. For a mostly illiterate family, they changed the spelling of their name so often. Originally, it had been Alcock, A-L-C-O-K. It had morphed into Alcox, C-O-X. And eventually, Bronson himself changed it to Alcott. Well, also, you can see how you might be sick of people cackling at Amos Alcox. <laughs> I'm just saying, he changed that situation around seventh grade, right when you think that kind of teasing might be starting to ramp up. So... <laughs> I do not blame him. No. Um, yeah, at all. Even forget Amos. We are no longer Amos. We are Bronson Alcott. That sounds, that's an improvement. A, Bronson Alcott was a man you could take seriously. So even though um, his community was lacking in facilities of almost every kind, young Bronson, he and one of his cousins started on a plan of self-improvement. They gathered books from near and far, and so they'd either copy them out that's laborious. Or they would charm people into donating them, which was way more time sensitive. <laughs> they studied all the time. I get this classic picture that we used to get of Abraham Lincoln, mm -hmm. you know, reading while walking behind the plow. Both of these boys worked extra at neighbors' houses for money to kind of scrape together to buy some book that had been on their wish list, but they couldn't find. And I absolutely love that kind of motivation. Yes, that's the part of him that I admire. I'm going to say that. <laughs> well, and I wonder if we, 
have mm-hmm. just the tiniest spark of it now. Actually, I mean, both you and I, Susan, and all of you listeners, no one's making us study these things. That's true. But I don't walk around with women's history books in my pocket, in my bag. But he had a copy of Pilgrim's Progress, which was written in like 1678. It was an allegory for Christian living. He had it in his pocket and he studied that thing front to back, back to front. He could quote from it. This was like his favorite book. It wasn't a Bible, but he kind of used it as a Bible. I don't have a book like that. Do you? Well, we have access to a lot more books, and I True. sure do have a ton of books in my pocket at all times, and so do you. I have the Libby app. Oh, yeah. I have the right. Audible app. So to say that we don't have books in our pocket, you we are. Do. Oh, my gosh. I sit corrected. You are absolutely right. I have books that people can talk to me and tell me the story, and I have books that I can read. You are absolutely correct. I don't have Pilgrim's Progress. <laughs> it's tough going. Good luck to you. that. <laughs> Uh, He did so well with the self-education that he got a place at the relatively exclusive Cheshire Academy, known throughout the area basically as a pipeline straight to Yale. No problemo. Unfortunately, though, he lasted less than a month. And I fear, I fear that his, quote, well-bred compatriots there weren't very supportive of some patched trouser accent having country bumpkin in their midst. And I think he probably got hazed into quitting. He was brilliant. He was a brilliant man. And he even at this age, he was thinking bigger than a lot of people. That too would make him seem odd. Well, and I don't know how much social skill he would have. I mean, I think there's probably different elements. But anyway, he left school and went to work in a clock factory because that's the work that was available. So then restless, as you might be working in a clock factory, he then spent five or so years as some kind of traveling peddler. Yeah, he would sell almanacs and combs and soaps and jewelry and sewing notions, crazy high markups. He was pretty good at it. He wasn't arrogant and boastful, but he had charm. He had intelligence and he was quiet and reserved and that attracted people to him. Something that's going to have some echoes into the future is he traveled through the South and saw slavery in action. And there were many times that the plantation owners and their families would invite him in. I mean, honestly, any visitor that has any kind of news, you know, step on up to the dinner table. Mm -hmm. Um, But some people warrior of strangers did not allow him in the house and he would bunk outside with the enslaved people. So I do believe he got a little knowledge of how it really was working down there. So that's good because financially this whole scenario was a disaster. Yeah, he was good at it, but he was also bad at it. He's never going to be a good businessman. And he got swindled by one of his suppliers and ended up deeply in debt. He had to borrow money from his father just to get home. And that ended his career as a traveling peddler. And it was his first foray into debt land. But not his last by any means. No. Don't be afraid. He'll have lots more experience. That's right. So he took the teacher's exam and was given the Cheshire School, the public school, which he promptly turned into a childhood utopia as far as I'm concerned. Like he'd ask his students to think about things and discuss. He paid for conditions in the classroom to improve. So there was light. There was heating. There was actual small-sized furniture. 
that fit everybody's legs. No more legs falling asleep in the middle of trying to learn math. Imagine that. (laughs) He wanted his students to be as comfortable as possible. He even decorated the room with things that made it homey and welcoming. So yeah, I love this part of him too. He was teaching critical thinking in the early 1800s. And also, which is super weird, he never whipped the tar out of anybody or smacked your hand if you missed a spelling word. Rather, it was, we the class know you can do better. I I believe perhaps you have not applied yourself, but we know it's in you. Why don't you go back and work on it? You know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Well, they had a classroom court system, too, where you had to present your case and argue it. And which, again, critical thinking and life skills but radical for the times. He'd like made games that were learning games, which to us is like normal, right? Back then, not so much. It was too novel and it was too suspicious for most of the parents. Kind of like a lighter version um, is when you are very suspicious of my son's gradeless school, sort of. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, it was too much. And so his classroom started hemorrhaging students. But leaders in the progressive education movement were intrigued. Among them, one Sam May of Brooklyn, Connecticut, who invited Brunson to come tell him all about it. And the door, when Brunson knocked, was opened by the man's sister, Abigail, as we'll probably call her Abba or Marmy, not to give too much of a spoiler. Okay, I'm never going to call her Marmy. You don't like that, (laughs) Marmy? No, I don't. As a matter of fact, at this point in research and everything, I kind of do an eye roll every time I hear it. (laughs) So I will never call her Marmy. So Mama herself, this is Abigail Abba, the one that opened the door, came from a notable family, long established and related to the Adamses, as in John, and the Hancocks, as in John. (laughs) one of her uncles was on the team with paul revere that warned that the british were coming old established her father himself his side of the family he was a self-made man who had achieved great wealth and married into these old families although the year before abba was born he had lost most of his money through a bad investment and the family moved to a more modest house but still the rooms here seem full of books and friends and music and generosity also tragedy Because Mama was the youngest of 12, and I will say at least four of the children died, and one brother died playing in the backyard. That's so bad. Yeah, right there in front of everybody. Papa was the seventh of eight, and all the previous six had died. So when I say no to time traveling, to living somewhere else, this is just no. No. (laughs) How can you bear it? How? I, I don't know. Well, I was the way life was. We're taking modern sensibilities and looking at it, but still, yeah, crushing. Well, I can't imagine they loved them any less or hoped for them any less. No, no, I don't think so either. But it was like a fact of life. Now, we are still talking about Mama here. As a little girl, she was allowed to go to school with her brother, Sam. I read in one book she was allowed to tag along. So I have a feeling she was not an official student at whatever school this was. Um, Once she was a little bit older, though, she had lessons at home, both from actual teachers and some of her older siblings. That seems perfectly natural. Mm-hmm. Well, she enjoyed learning things. Her family really just wanted her to learn enough to be able to attract a husband, but learn more domestic skills so she could serve him. This is the environment we're growing up in. You have to remember that. Even though she's getting this 
education um, and she wants more, it, there's no end goal here for her. Yeah, they had started putting pressure on her as she became marriageable in age to marry a cousin of hers, which she was really reluctant to do. She told her parents she was hoping for a love match. What are you supposed to do, really? Because if they are determined you're going to marry someone, your home life is going to be very uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. So her brother Sam stepped in and got her a year of reprieve um, called Further Education, Studying History and Philosophy and Latin and other masculine things and staying with some family friends. So Mama and her older sister Louisa began to make plans for opening up a school of their own. Well, her erstwhile fiancé slash cousin died, so there's one less worry that's really selfish of me to say that. I know. I thought, but you know what? I thought the same thing. I was like, oh, good. She doesn't have that pressure on her anymore. Because I mean, they were really pressuring her to marry him. Yeah. She was just not into it. So then her sister got married and no longer could open a school with her. So there go your options of marriage and of gainful employment. So her mother died shortly afterwards. And therefore, that's your future, I guess. Spinster daughter. Um, housekeeper for widowed father. Psych. Her father got married again. What the heck? 19th century lady life paths. You have to leave her one. I mean, holy oh. moly. There's nothing. So she went on an extended visit slash went to live with her brother Sam and his wife, which is how she was the one to open the door to Brunson Alcott on that fateful day. They were engaged within a year. But when her sister Louisa died, Abba, as an unmarried sister, was expected to step up and take charge of her children. So there's two more years of delay before some other arrangements were made for that little family and Abba and Bronson could be married at last. It was definitely a love match. I, she got the man she wanted. It was pretty much attraction at first sight when she opened the door for both of them, although they were very polite and they continued a correspondence for all this time. What Bronson was doing was opening these schools in that same philosophy that he had in Cheshire, Connecticut. He would open a school. It would uh, attract a lot of students. And then the parents would get wind of these unusual teaching methods, which was what attracted them in the first place. But they'd slowly begin to pull their kids out. And he was a spender big time. The school would get in debt and he would have to close the doors and move on and do it again. That's kind of like his pattern for many years there. Yeah, there were several years of constant moving house and failed schools. So there's delightful houses with fine furniture, followed by houses on the bad side of town. Two daughters were born and then three. And poor Louisa was sandwiched between the obedient and placid Anna and beautiful Angel Lizzie. And all Louisa wanted to do is explore and ask questions and not obey, which I'm sorry to say from an educator that pretended to believe in the gentle opening of children's minds got her spanked often and sent to bed without supper. I don't understand that juxtaposition. I do. He had no other plan. He tried all his theories and they weren't working on this kid. I guess all I'm saying is for a guy that 
was so progressive and open-minded at work, he sure did not bring any of that action home. I don't understand it. She came out of the womb super active. Her father, when she was just a baby, had described her as, quote, unusual vivacity and force of spirit. So as she's getting older and a toddler, she's pretty much the wild child. And he couldn't come up with another plan and resorted to spanking. It probably worked one time and he did it again. He also <laughs> described her as the stronger the opposing gale, the more sullenly and obstinately does she ply her energies. And when compelled to yield, she yields, but only to await the calming of the angry waters that she may ride on again toward her own purposes. I am here to tell you, obedience is not necessarily the best plan with a child like that. That is just asking for a confrontation. I don't know. That's my. As opinion. Bronson found out. I'm sorry. I'm getting all head up. I am. I promise to calm down. I just. I'm so frustrated by the missed opportunity here, I think. And I'm also frustrated by what seems like a lifelong and early onset goal to do nothing but crush her spirit. And I don't understand the purpose of it. So. But one thing we can say <laughs> categorically is that. Louisa's life was pretty nigh on always turbulent from the very beginning. Before she was six years old, she'd lived in 12 houses. Uh, that's, I mean, that's how often they moved. Bronson and Abba were deeply involved in most of the liberal movements of their day. Abolition in an era where even in New England, known abolitionists were sometimes tarred and feathered as punishment. Mm -hmm. You don't really think about that, do you, at this point? in time. There was an incident when uh, a group of abolitionists came to the Alcott's house and were kind of hiding out from this gang that was looking for them to grab somebody, anybody, and tar and feather them and make them a example of what could be done if you keep on this crazy path of trying to free the slaves. Well, also women's rights. You know, these are the New England classics, as we have talked about before, um, abolition and women's rights. This is just a prime time for the likes of Lucretia Mott and the Grimke sisters, um, all of whom Mama met and had meetings with. Also, they were involved in a movement called transcendentalism, which is the belief that each person has within them the ability to achieve perfection. That's pretty much the short version. <laughs> it is a spiritual movement. It's not they believe in a God, but it's not like a organized religion. It's more your own path type of religion. It's kind of your own responsibility and society's responsibility to help others to achieve their perfection if you can, like help them with worldly goods if you have the means or if you have the knowledge, it's your responsibility to help with that. They ran with some of the most intellectual giants of the day, people we have still heard of. Ralph Waldo Emerson, Henry David Thoreau, Nathaniel Hawthorne, Horace Mann, who might not be up there with the other guys unless you are in the teaching profession, because Horace Mann was pretty much the country's biggest advocate for the necessity of public education. And I will argue that unless you are a super fan of The Scarlet Letter or On Walden Pond, Horace Mann probably had more effect on your modern life than any of the transcendentalists. All of these guys thought that Bronson Alcott was an absolutely intriguing and eccentric genius. I think his family would have preferred that he settled down to something for five minutes that would make enough money to live on. That's what I think. They would 
often move house and leave bills behind, hoping to avoid the consequences because there was no other option. He did have one school that was fairly successful. It was called the Temple School. It was in Boston. He was able to set it up. He had people who worked with him on this who were also um, of the same philosophy, of the same mind of how to teach children. He opened the school with 20 students. That's pretty good when Louisa was just two. And he was able to run it for five years, which was the longest time that he had run any of these schools before he ran them into the ground. Well... He can never have anything nice without sabotaging it himself through going just a little bit too far. How do I even put this? He he had a sex education course at his school, followed by the publication of Conversations with Children about the Gospel, which doctrine-wise kind of rubbed people the wrong way. And then to cap it off, just to be a little more radical than anyone could handle, he admitted an African-American student named Susan Robinson, which I'm sorry to say, even in New England, was the thing that put the end to Papa's teaching career forever. As parents, they allowed the girls, now we're talking about it, like a three and a four-year-old, to wander the streets of Boston on their own. This was fine with them. They could go out and explore. I read that and my anxiety just shot up the roof. And then it went even farther. One day, Louisa was at the Boston Common and she fell into a pond. She couldn't swim. She was only like three. And this little African-American boy came and saved her from the water. And from then on, she decided that she was going to become an abolitionist, too. That's what she says at three. (laughs) She was even allowed to wander at night. One night she got lost. She didn't know where she was. So she curled up with a Newfoundland dog and just (laughs) fell asleep in a doorway until the town crier found her. And the dog was protecting her. It took a while to get the kid away from him to bring her home. Well, Emerson... Lucky that we have a slightly wealthy friend. Emerson paid for the family to move to Concord, nearer to him. And he he was kind of the patron of this whole transcendentalist group because he's the one that let Thoreau use that piece of land near Walden Pond for that famous experiment. Talk about patronage. The intent, I think, was to be able to help, via transcendentalist principles, his friend to achieve his greatest potential. So he was walking the talk. If you have the means, Mm -hmm. you are to help others. So, Mama had a baby that they didn't even name for three months because what had happened between the third sister and now was I counted at least four miscarriages and one stillborn son. Yeah. For a very long time. I mean, months they just called it baby. And then when they did come up with a name for her, it was Abigail May, which is... Abba's real name, Abigail May. <laughs> Clever. So Papa got some fan mail from England and began to believe his own press. And he brought back with him some followers that did not sit very well with Abba at all. He started to fall down the worst kind of rabbit hole. <laughs> <laughs> he began to refuse to accept money for work. He thought that was dirty and against his principles. People should only have what they have produced by their very own labor. Like he was against the principles of trade at all. The family was sinking into poverty. There was never enough to eat. Abba had to ask around for seamstress work from her friends. I and mean, there's nothing wrong with being a seamstress, but for someone from her background 
who is married to have to ask for seamstress work seems like quite, quite the come down. And pride didn't matter. Not good. Not good at all. Uh, Anna and Louisa, aged eight and 10, would also have to participate in the seamstress work too. That's how desperate it was. Meanwhile, Papa went out as sort of an itinerant philosopher, which, as you know, is a very lucrative profession. More and more followers started to make their way back to Concord, and soon the idea was floated that they should start a new kind of community, a utopia where men and women could live in harmony. And this, I will tell you, seems to be the absolute pinnacle for that kind of experiment. I mean, we've got the Shakers, the Amana community, the Oneida community. (laughs) Although we should link you, that one had a little foray into group marriage and a breeding program. Woo! You know, we're not quite there yet. We we talk a lot about these communities in the Sojourner Truth episode, which is episode 96 of the History Chicks podcast. Right. So these that I've named were the most famous ones, but little hopeful utopias are springing up all over New England and New York and Ohio. And um, most succumbed to human nature, as they do, and disappeared from the record and from the face of the earth. Um, One of Papa's followers turned into an absolute emperor, a horrible, bossy, mean dictator. Um, The house became humorless and grim. I, you know, I don't know what other word to say. This man, Charles Lane, was just, I hate this, was determined and he stated as such to break both Abba and Louise's spirit. He viewed them as enemies. And Papa was gone a lot. So he was the only man in the house who took over the education of the girls. They had been homeschooled, essentially, by their parents. But he's like, nope, I'm going to take it over. I'm going to increase their workload. They studied geometry, geography, French, Latin, music, spelling, grammar, arithmetic, and journal writing, which actually Louisa excelled at. But that is a lot more than they had been doing. And in addition, they have no help. You know, a lot of times we talk about these stories about people being poor. It's like genteel poor. They still had a housekeeper or something. There's no housekeeper in this situation. The kids are the ones that are doing a lot of the work. So this was not a good time at all to be Louisa May Alcott, who just wants to go run and play and run and run and run some more. Louisa let her skepticism and her irritation leak out and became a target, I think. Even Papa, I'm so mad at him, called both his wife and Louisa and I quote, black fiends for their natural instinct to stand up for themselves. And I am so disappointed in him allowing this to happen to his family that I can hardly stand it. I don't know what kind of madness this was. Mm-mm. Well, I think he and Lane kind of enabled each other. They both had these lofty goals for how living was supposed to be. And if you agreed with one, then you'll have to agree with the other. And they just kind of built up this extreme... Um, outlook on life and and spirituality. Well, the commune, let's just call it that at this point, got hold (laughs) of a big old dilapidated farmhouse with acreage, which they called Fruitlands, and moved on out there to start a new life. (laughs) It was a little farther out. It's about 16 miles from Concord if you go northwest. And it started off okay. There's fruit trees and they planted some gardens. They had been gardening back in Concord, so this wasn't new to them. However, they were limited by what Lane and Bronson put down as rules. I mean, they couldn't grow anything that grew down. 
no potatoes, no beets, no carrots, because it was going the wrong direction. It was going down. Not oh, up. my gosh. I can't <laughs> even take it. I mean, and they were vegan, which, OK, n- not a problem now. Back then, kind of hard to get your uh, complete nutrition, especially if you're not having any dairy at all. So meat, OK, that's one thing. But dairy, you can't even have dairy. They planted the garden at least a month and probably two months too late to get the produce at the right time. And there were no fall crops are usually root crops, you know, so... A lot of food just kind of went away as the winter months came on, and they ended up with oatmeal and water, apples, and graham crackers. That's pretty much what they lived on. No relation, Sylvester Graham, no relation. He's another crackpot. (laughs) Well, he's the one that came up with this diet in the first place. The rules are unbelievable. You can't wear wool because it comes from a sheep, and that's exploiting the animal. In addition to not using animals for their product, you were also not allowed to use animals for their labor. So um, they had to plow these fields with men in harness instead of animals. So some of the neighbors who were not part of this commune kind of took pity on them and got a cow for uh, Abba to use, and they'd go out to the barn and sneak milk. It's not even like killing the animal. You're just milking it. Which they probably welcome in the first place because it hurts to yeah. be milked. So yeah. there you go. Of all the rules, dietary and otherwise, that they had, um, I'd say the prohibition against cotton is the only one that I can truly understand. You have to wear linen clothing, not cotton, because cotton is picked by slaves in the South, and they weren't going to support that. Well, anyway, um, it got so much worse to the point where Charles Lane determined that women were not to have opinions on anything but household needs, like food and clothing. Whoa, that took a sudden turn, didn't it? Men discussed philosophy. The end. Women minded their beeswax. (laughs) Although they didn't because you couldn't use bee labor either because honey is bee slavery. So that's how far we've gone. And you couldn't have honey because it was sugar. There was no sugars allowed. And no hot water. So cold baths. Um, No private property. Doors just slamming shut. Bang, 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 bang. All over the mind, all over the body. The winter approached and Abba wrote to her family that her children were starving. Her husband had descended into madness (laughs) and she then threw down the gauntlet after the winter kind of began in earnest. She'd made it through December and, you know, December is a little bit of a prelude. But once January hits, you kind of know what you're facing. And ultimately, she made the right decision because... I do believe that winter they got 100 inches of snow. But anyway, she couldn't have known that ahead of time. She arranged for herself, the girls, and all the furniture to be picked up by a neighbor and taken to a house that her brother had underwritten. Yeah. Yay. Good. That's what happens when women think. So Bronson could stay or go as he pleased at this point. You know, there was a lot of tension and she was firm and she didn't care. You can stay. It will be a separation. I'm okay with that. At this point, I can't take this anymore. You are ruining the family and we will go. I need to save my children's lives. But Papa finally came with them. And I'm sad to say it was a tough decision for him. I Well, he kind of spiraled into, I, I want to say a situational depression, but I think there was some other underlying mental illness in play here. Um, but he was just lay there in bed and just stare at the wall. He wasn't drinking. He wasn't eating. He wasn't doing anything. And this is so dramatic. And then one day she was nearby and he reached his hand out and he said, hope. And that's when he decided to get up out of bed and move out. 
That's Drama. when I decided to kick him in the ding ding. <laughs> Whatever. I hope that you get your A out of bed. Goodbye. Well, anyway, uh, 11-year-old Louisa was old enough to remember all this turmoil of the past year. It's just the craziest thing. Mm-hmm. You just don't even... Uh... It's bleak to read about it now. You know, and we tend to, you know, blur the edges a lot. So to live it, to be that hungry and that cold and working from dusk till dawn with, you know, and you weren't supposed to have a voice. I have to tell you, I was that shocked when I heard that um, Joaquin Phoenix and his whole family grew up in a commune, too. Well, I don't know. The communes themselves are bad. I mean, I don't think it's a st- lifestyle for me. This was just two guys making some really bad mistakes for other people. She actually used this part of her life in a short story that she wrote much, much later called Transcendental Wild Oats that does not paint a very good picture of what was happening that year at all. This is probably a good time to take a break. And now that they're out of that situation, what is the family going to do? back. We have escaped from Fruitlands, but I just do not know about this family. I kept reading about how, you know, cohesive a family unit they were, quote, (laughs) despite their troubles. But then you see that Abba confessed to being in a blind rage at least once a day. And Louisa, who was just like her, is crying herself to sleep almost every night. For years would ball up her fists in her own fits of rage. I don't know that it was that healthy. I mean, maybe we just don't see Anna and Lizzie, but they're probably broken in their own way. Papa starts off okay at the new place, you know, planting a garden and in general being hopeful. He piped water into the house. That's radical and useful. At this point, it was kind of like when she decided to leave Fruitland, Abba kind of took charge. She became a totally different woman. She kind of took over as the brains and the heart of the family, where before she was just maybe the heart and a lot of muscle. But she's kind of taking over a role at this point, kind of a leadership role. And he's letting her. He's like starting to do all these DIY project. There was a little cabin or something on their property and he cut it in half and attached it to the house as an addition on each side. But that's nice. He's just doing it. He's kind of happily puttering away. But he's refusing to work for any wage at all. He still has this objection to owning property. So poor old Abba's family had to do some kind of subterfuge where Emerson held the title to the property so that Brunson would agree to move into it. I don't know. He's a loose cannon with a frayed rope is what I'm picturing. If he had been born fabulously wealthy and acted this way, it would have been eccentric and and charming and, you know, hurting no one except for making the servants roll their eyes. But 
His wife and children were depending on him. So it is not so charming to me. I don't 100% care if he didn't want the responsibility of supporting a family. That's fine. Then don't take it up because these women do not have the ability to earn their own bread for the most part in this era. They just don't. Mm -hmm. They literally have to depend on you. Yeah. Well, she he's been like this for a very long time. I mean, their entire relationship. It was easy to see Abba's father died. And in his will, he had divided up his estate to all of his kids or his kids' kids if they were dead. So it was divided in seven. And Abba did make a move here. She felt entitled to more at that point. But her father had a clause in his will that her money was not to go directly to her. It would be held in trust and she couldn't use it to pay off any of the family debts, which was really smart. But it took years for her to get her hands on it at all. But everybody knew Bronson was like this, that he was poor with money and they just did what they could to help protect the family from the position they were in. I'm not sure why Abba thought she deserved more money than her sisters and brothers. I think because her sisters and brothers were doing better. I'm not saying it was right. I just think they're fine. I'm working, you know, I'm working, I'm sewing for people. I'm working in the garden. I'm feeding my family. I'm doing all this stuff. And they're, you know, they have housekeepers. They don't need it as much as I do, is how I read it. Well, that also seems kind of dysfunctional too. To me, it does. It does. <laughs> but there was a level of function at this particular time with the family. This was a time that the kids actually got to go to a normal school. They made friends, they jumped rope, they rolled hoops. You know, they got to be kids in a normal environment, which I think was crazy healthy for them. This is the house. It's called Hillside, where most of the action that will later be illuminated in Little Women happened. This is where Louisa and Abba wrote all the plays. You like, you know, um, Rodrigo and all the, <laughs> the dramatic piratical plays with the costumes. And they put them on for the neighborhood with the other kids. The famous mailbox where they would leave little treats for the neighbor kids and the neighbor kids would leave little messages and treats for them. The mailbox that appears in both Little Women and a future book called Jack and Jill that she wrote. So that must have stuck out as something that was very cool. Um, she wrote a lot of poetry. <laughs> I don't know. So there's a certain kind of kid that always writes a lot of poetry. A lot of her journals she burned before she died, but there's plenty still saved. And at eight, she had written this poem, which I thought was lovely, about a robin. Now, this is eight-year-old Louisa May Alcott. This is just the first stanza. Welcome, welcome, little stranger. Fear no harm and fear no danger. We are glad to see you here. For you sing, sweet spring is near. I am not a fan of the poetry. I think I've made that very clear. No, <laughs> an eight-year-old. I'm not a fan of poetry, and I don't understand it. I always feel like I'm not putting pauses in the right place, and all those lowercase letters in some of them kind of disorient me. <laughs> That's a cute. That could be on a Hallmark card. <laughs> something else that Louisa wrote struck me as something darker. I'm going to quote this. This is from her journal. People think I'm wild and queer, but mother understands and helps me. I've not told anyone about my plan, but I'm going to be good. I've made so many resolutions and written sad notes and cried over my sins, and it doesn't seem to do any good. Now I'm going to work really, for I feel a true desire to improve and be a help and comfort, not a care and sorrow to my dear mother. Which is bleak at 13 mm -hmm. to be, what sins could you possibly have at 13? None. I just find that very sad. 
No, it is. I guess that is part of, um, you know, the spiritual education that her father had started when she was younger. You know, you have to work to be good. Her inclination was not to be good in the first place, or it's his idea of good anyway. I was going to say, I think she was mighty good. Really? She was so good that she stole a horse and a sleigh for a joyride. <laughs> she had a little romance with a schoolboy named Augustus. So it's cute. She did all kinds of crazy things. She was the leader of the pack. I think there was one time where they, I don't want to say broke into the factory because I actually don't think it was locked, but they didn't break and entered mm-hmm. <laughs> a factory and rode these like coal carts around and started crashing them into walls and stuff. This reminds me of when my grandma tells stories about when she was little and her brothers used to stick her in quicksand to time each other of how fast they could get her back out. I'm like, what? <laughs> how did we make it? <laughs> Yeah. Little boys or little brothers are very cruel. My two brothers, my twin brother and my younger brother, filled up a gallon milk jug with garter snakes. We lived out in the country, so it wasn't that hard. They dumped them all in the driveway and then they called me outside and pushed me in the middle of it. Why did they do that? Because they were eight and seven year old boys and it'll be fun because Susan's scared of snakes. It'll be awesome. She'll scream. Man, my only child is going to have no weaponry when it comes to conflict because he has not been through all that. (laughs) That's funny. (laughs) That's going to be real sad. Uh, Well, okay. So here's a good thing. Here is good. This is everybody but good. The family, um, when they were living in this house, hosted several, not just one, several escaping enslaved people as a stop on the Underground Railroad. Quakers and transcendentalists, man. They really walked the talk on anti-slavery because this could have gotten them in giant amounts of trouble. So there's a little thing that happened during childhood that I actually do consider a very good thing. It is a very good thing. And at this time, the, the girls are all like teenagers at this point are getting there. And Abba would let them have friends over and play cards, which was kind of something they weren't supposed to be doing according to their spiritual beliefs. But it was cards and it was fun. And they're so it was kind of like the house that the kids went to, which is a charming image, you know, after all this bleakness. This just occurred to me about that thing you just read. Part of Louisa's therapy that her mother kind of told her to do was to write out her feelings because she would have these great mood swings. And her mother said, just go write it all out, write it out, get it on the paper. That'll, you know, help you get through this. So maybe that was from one of those things. Well, maybe. And I also thought it was a little weird that the diary was considered open property, I guess. I don't know how you feel about this, but I mean, Louisa would often open up the pages of her journal and see a note from her mother. Like, I know you've been working on this or whatever. And then I, I'm like, oh, no, no, I think I would cool. write a lot differently. Teenage Louisa had a giant crush on Thoreau. <laughs> Her father had helped build the house at Walden Pond, by the way. This is how in with Thoreau he was. Um, She had another crush on Waldo Emerson. Both great men treated her very gravely and respectfully. And I am very pleased about them. No one Mm -hmm. made fun of her. No one made her embarrassed about that. I mean, one guy was this... I hate to call him a hippie flower child, but he was the man of nature. He was the man of the wind and the birds and the air. And then one man was a serious man of letters with a giant library and um, a respectable reputation. Both Mm -hmm. of these men would have future roles in her literature and would have been good paternal role models. And like her own father, who honestly was still 
dragging them down to the point where the women of the family had to start scrabbling around for income because all of the grocers in Concord had cut them off. It was bad. You know, I probably would have had a crush on Thoreau as well. (laughs) He would take her on these nature walks. Now, this is a kid. She likes to be outside and active and running. She was big on running. And he would take her on these nature walks and, and teach her about things that they saw. And she, in return would teach those things to other kids. There was one summer when she set up kind of a summer school and she did exactly the same things with these kids that Thoreau did with her. It's charming. Evidently, she was sort of a Pied Piper because of what people called her bohemian upbringing. (laughs) They bathed every day. Weird. I mean, (laughs) that's the good part of the bohemian upbringing. I'll tell you that right now. Uh, well. But in cold water, I don't know how good that is. I don't know if there was soap or anything or if you just had to like suffer from being wet. I actually don't know. I, I'm I'm guessing there was soap. There had well, when they had the you know the wherewithal to get the ingredients to make the soap. So Abba was asked to take in a teenage girl whose family wanted her out of the way due to her slow mental state. They called her an imbecile, uh, was the word used. So for a fee, her upper class family got her out of the way in this house. Um, her older sister Anna went out to teach a school because a cousin had pulled some strings. Louisa decorated little boxes and purses and hair ornaments and baby clothes to be sold in the town. And Papa was grumpy about this and scolded his wife and said, you should not interfere with God's plan by making plans for them. Oh, my God. Yeah, she had gotten this position where she had to go to Maine to be a matron at a water bar, you know, take the waters kind of place. She took the border and she took little May because she was too young to be by herself. So she was gone. I mean, he had nobody to boss around. <laughs> Well, and Louisa was expected to keep house for her father and run that little summer school. (laughs) You'd want to go to work every morning. You'd just run there, run to work. (laughs) Well, the school um, was a pretty good success. Not the least reason because of these little fairy tales she would tell them during quiet time. All about flowers and their assorted personalities, which reminds me a lot of um, Alice in Wonderland. How, Mm -hmm. uh, Or is Through the Looking Glass, I guess, where all of the flowers have very distinct personalities. Ralph Waldo Emerson himself, and I quote, she is the poet of children. She knows their angels. So that's high praise from a famous writer. That's beautiful. But Louisa was determined. And I think this is when it all coalesced, when her whole family was scattered because nobody had any money. I will make a battering ram of my head, she said, and make my way through this rough and tumble world myself, which is probably less romantic uh, reason for writing than many biographers might give her. I actually don't 100% think writing was the glorious, all-consuming joy that we might think it is. I think it was something she found she could do well and would pay the bills because she became obsessed with paying the bills, paying the bills, because nobody else was going to pay the bills. So it was going to have to be her. I think that dread and understanding washed over her at quite an early age, that she mm-hmm. was going to have to be the one. Good. When you find a skill that you're good at, And that's kind of the transcendentalist thing. When you find something that's inherent in you and you pursue it, that's what you're supposed to do with your life. Well, it's super embarrassing. I think if you're thinking about a teenage girl to know that the whole town has this like envelope going around called the Alcott Sinking Fund and everybody has a spare five or whatever and throws it in there for the next occasion that you fail. I mean, come on. Yeah. 
I, yeah. It's nice of them. It is nice of them to mm-hmm. even have it going, but still the need for it is so galling. Well, Abba's yep. job up in Maine ended. So a group of wealthy friends met up to see what could be done. And it's pretty telling that no one for five minutes entertained any idea of getting Bronson a job. They sort of um, invented one for ABBA in Boston, and they called it a missionary to the poor, what we might now call a social worker, though that position doesn't exist in the world yet. Her job was kind of to go among the poor of Boston and determine their needs, um, report back, distribute the money, distribute the donated goods. This was also an attribute given to Marmee in Little Women, although in Little Women, Marmee did it as a volunteer opportunity. But in this case, Abba was being paid to do it. Right. The whole family had to leave Concord and move up to Boston. So they left this beautiful, I mean, in my head, this beautiful, sunny summer of gorgeousness and went into a basement apartment in the dirtiest, poorest part of Boston. It's kind of sad and bleak. Everybody worked well. (laughs) Lizzie and May went to school. Anna was a governess. (sighs) Papa kind of went out and did his, he called them conversations, where he'd go and talk to people and they'd give them donations or, or a reward. They're not paying him a salary, but he's getting gigs, so I guess it's good. And Louisa was staying home and taking care of everything else. Uh, what she did with her free time um, is write a novel. It was kind of as an exercise. She had no intention of getting it published. It's called The Inheritance. And she was able to take those fantasies of those luxury items and put them into this story. It was heavily influenced by Jane Eyre and was found 130 years after she died and published. So that's pretty cool. I know so many of these papers ended up all kind of places and not all of these places were in the fireplace. Mm -mm, So there could still be undiscovered works out there. This is definitely a person for whom there could be undiscovered works still. You know, sometimes you're just like, no, we're done. We're done finding... Like yeah. Jane Austen novels. There's nowhere else to look. But in this case, it just really does seem like because she yeah. wrote under so many different names and so many different kind of genres. I think that we're going to get a treasure trove at some point. I don't know. <laughs> or maybe we have it. We just, it's just all scattered. Yeah, we've hit a new low, I believe, in Boston. And Louisa took a job as a companion, um, which she left and they paid her so little money that it was almost insulting, but she couldn't afford to even be insulted by it. That's how low they were. Then she took a job as um, what was called a second girl, a servant girl. This is in a cousin's house, by the way, not a total stranger. Basically, a second girl is scullery maid plus laundry maid. This is the lowest you are going to get in a big household as a servant. Now, she didn't have any experience as a servant, so you got to start at the bottom and, you know, whatever. Whatever's going to pay the bills, pay the bills. She had her first published story called Rival Painters that was in a newspaper, but for exposure. No pay. No pay. But by her second published story, Rival, that sounds familiar, Prima Donnas, she got paid $5. So when she was 21, Louisa had her first published book. She wrote under the name Flora Fairfield, and the book is called Flower Fables. And what it was, a writing down of stories that she had told Emerson's daughter, Ellen, way back in the summer school era, and that Emerson and a friend, a backer, a lady with the name of Wealthy Stevens, and that I swear to you is her real name. I know. I I went back. I was like, really? That sounds like a Twitter handle. (laughs) But I guess if there's prudence and charity... Wealthy. That's an attribute. Sure. Sure it is. (laughs) Maybe, uh, you know, we can, maybe she has a sister named Fabulous. I don't know. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, anyway, so Wealthy Stevens was the guarantor um, to the publisher that it would make back its costs. Um, and it did. Um, they printed 1,600 copies. And Louisa gave the first copy to her mother. And she wrote, whatever beauty is to be found in my little book is owing to your interest in and encouragement of my efforts from the first to the last. That's lovely. And she earned $32. Which is about $935 in today's money. Yeah. So that's good. To get it published, they had to pay $300 at the time, which is over $8,000 now. They made it back and then $32 on top of it. (laughs) So Louisa's first five years of authorship was all mixed in with different things. Um, Acting in amateur theater, which she and Anna excelled at and were acclaimed for, but you know, not so respectable to be, quote, an actress, but they were really good at it. Uh, Seamstress work, being a governess. Also, going out into society in Boston under the wing of rich relations and their cast-off clothes. I saw a lot of parallels with Jane Austen at this particular time in her life because she's going off for weeks with her relatives in, you know, fancy Leicester, Massachusetts, and then coming back to not having a lot of money, you know, kind of like Jane Austen did. It just reminded me a lot of that. She was considered so very charming in society, which says to me that she had a good game face because behind the scenes, she was so stressed out and I think pretty unhappy about The unfairness of her lot as the poor relation, having to scrabble around for crumbs while others seem to live charmed lives and just be handed things, which is a totally normal feeling. Uh, One book I read put forth the idea that Louisa seriously considered suicide at one point, right about now, um, in her mid-twenties. Then she wrote back to her parents that she had, you know, had these dark thoughts as she's looking down off the dam at the water. I think if you're going to write that in a letter and then the letter takes however long to get to your recipient, the urgency has passed. But and later in a story called Old Fashioned Girl, a worn out poor servant girl who just couldn't get enough money to keep body and soul together tries to kill herself. That's pretty Mm -hmm. um, daring. I will tell you something that irritates even me. Louise's younger sister, May, through, I guess, her blonde beauty or maybe just that sort of way the youngest child has keep in mind i'm an oldest child (laughs) i'm assuming that her way will be paid for her may was invited to town to stay with some rich relations that paid her fees for art classes and didn't expect her to do any work in return like a daughter not like a poor relation i mean that would make me so mad i have been a dang laundry maid in a cousin's house kids and now may just waltzes in quite literally into society and sweeps everyone up with her vapor of fabulousness i I get it. I get it. Louisa has had to struggle for every dang thing. And when she was little, they didn't always want to take her in. Like when mom was about to give birth or had given birth or had lost a baby and they sent the kids away, people didn't necessarily want to take her in because she was too wild and hard to control and disobedient, according to their rules. Mm-hmm. So she has that reputation following her where May doesn't, you know? I it, guess. It's, I, yeah, I see the big difference. The haves and the have-nots are supposed to be outside of your family, not your sister, right? Oh, well, so anyway, I, I completely see how <laughs> Amy does not come out 100% well in Little Women <laughs> for the first book anyway. <laughs> well, so um, Louisa was able to break out, like Joe March, to live in a boarding house and support herself with what she called her scribbles. She switched genres a little, uh, writing sort of lurid, lust filled bloody 
action movie type stories under the name of A.M. Barnard and was printing money for a while. She was so good at this. And even experienced writers don't do this kind of switching back and forth very well at all. And she was just a master of different genres of writing. To look at her face, you would not know all that was going on inside of her head. <laughs> she was writing about drug use and relations. And uh, a lot of her stories had to do with women from poor backgrounds who find themselves in a very wealthy situation and thrilling intrigue results. It's like Harlequin novels, almost. Yes. Bodice rippers of the 1800s. (laughs) (laughs) That's my new band name. Oh, that's a great band name. I like it. We need a (laughs) t-shirt. I'm going to write that down. So here Louisa is up in her attic bedroom in the boarding house, making things happen for the characters in her books, while simultaneously making money in the usual pedestrian way. Boring sewing that people didn't want to do at home, like hemming sheets, making pillowcases. I wish, for her sake, that she had had podcasts to listen to, or at least an <laughs> audiobook. Wouldn't that have made those hours of pillowcases uh, a lot okay. easier? All right, I'm going to counter that and say, if she had a podcast to listen to, she might not have been a, such a prolific writer. Because while her hands were busy, she could be plotting out her next story or her next book. Oh, I guess. Rather than listening to us. That's true. <laughs> and you story. know, we don't have that much um, boredom anymore. All, honestly, I can tell you, no. I've never been bored my whole entire life. But, now, you know, that seems like that takes a special kind of luxury to be able to be bored. I don't really think I've ever been there. <laughs> we'll see. But still, sewing pillowcases might have done it for me. <laughs> well, anyway, she had a couple of little girls that she taught lessons to and she was keeping afloat. Which is nearly miraculous for a woman in the 1850s who did not have a roommate. She was actually making enough money that she could go to the theater on a regular basis. So that is an achievement. I think I will come out all right, she wrote to her father, and prove that even though I'm in Alcott, I can support myself. So how about them apples, Papa? Um, Now, I don't want you to think that she was languishing all up in her attic garret all alone. She actually did receive two proposals of marriage right about now. One, admittedly a stalker. I'm telling you, like a creepazoid that would hang out outside with his hat in his hand. He would have sung that on the street where you live song, but it hadn't been written yet. (laughs) But yeah, he was like the big family joke. It's your boyfriend. But there was, in addition, more seriously, a rich silk merchant who had offered his hand in marriage. And there was a little bit of a dilemma because you know what? I can save the family by marrying this man I don't love, who is a lot older than me. I can do it. And she took the step of talking to her mother about it. And her mother, although she had married for love, and this is how it turned out, did advise her not to marry a man she didn't love. So she didn't. While the Alcott name did give her um, that poor identity, it also gave her some clout and some credibility within the intellectual and the progressive community in Boston. So she was going to these, you know, Sunday evening salons with all these people who were, you know, talking about anti-slavery moments and states of the union and how the war was starting to amp up. So she was able to be with all these reformers and get that kind of intellectual stimulation because she was an Alcott. Correct. So 
<laughs> there was a good side to that coin too. Well, uh, she also wrote, I like the independent life and though it is not an easy life, it is a free one and I enjoy it. So two things happened in rapid succession, probably because she said that last sentence out loud and the universe didn't approve. Third sister Lizzie, the gentlest one in the family, she died. Not suddenly, exactly. I mean, she'd been ill for a couple of years. And of course, no one could figure out what was wrong with her. Uh, rheumatic fever, heart failure as a complication of scarlet fever seems to be what modern medical detectives have decided it was. I have to tell you, reading Little Women, I didn't cry when Beth died because I just didn't. But I did cry when Joe was sad about her being dead. I felt more for Joe, like being bereft mm -hmm. of her family buddy than I ever did about Beth herself. I'm sorry, Beth. I, I just didn't didn't get into your world there. <laughs> uh, she was hard to, kind of hard to relate to for somebody like you, I think. When Amy Burns of the journals, that's when I was livid. I was so mad. Right. The second thing that happened that disrupted Louise's independent lifestyle was that Anna, the oldest daughter, became engaged to a fellow community theater actor, transcendentalist, <laughs> and old family friend named John Pratt. And Louisa was starting to see that the duty part of the family was going to fall upon her. Um, Lizzie died. Anna is going to be officially responsible to a different family unit. And of course, May was off being the subject of patronage, but everyone's just abandoning her willy nilly. Not Lizzie's fault. <laughs> but I'm just saying, one by no. one, everyone slips out and leaves you with the bill. So they bought Orchard House, which is the current and future Louisa May Alcott monument. <laughs> um, and all the sisters helped to fix it up. And that would be the family house for nearly the rest of Louise's life. That house, it was built in 1675. So it wasn't like they moved into this, you know, new house in a starter house in a subdivision. It was a historical house. The owners had fought in the Revolutionary War. There had been a battle right down the street. There had been redcoats picked off by the owner and his son as they walked by the house. There was a lot of history here, but it was also really dilapidated. And while Bronson thought of it named Orchard House, the way that Louisa thought of it was Apple Slump, which is, it's a dessert. And actually it's kind of, it's kind of delicious. I'll put a recipe in the show notes, but it's kind of apple pie topped with cobbler. Let's just call it a dump cake because yes. it is, that's <laughs> what we're supposed to take from her name is she calls it a dump cake. And so... <laughs> <laughs> but I'm going to put the recipe on there so you can um, make it and eat it while you watch the miniseries that we'll talk about okay. later. <laughs> I'm not saying dump cake's not delicious. I'm just saying it doesn't have its pinky in the air the way Orchard House does. Oh, no, 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 not at all. So uh, Civil War rumblings began when Louisa was about 27. Um, the noted abolitionist activist John Brown, who also appears in the Laura Ingalls Wilder books, by the way, was hanged for his role in the raid on an armory at a place called Harper's Ferry. And all of Concord had a vigil for him. When the Civil War did break out, 
Louisa first headed to the Concord Town Hall so she could help with sewing of Union uniforms and rolling bandages. She knew at this point she wasn't going to get married. It wasn't in the stars for her. She would call herself a spinster so that people wouldn't call her it first. So she had accepted that. As her 30th birthday approached, she thought she wanted to do something else, something more substantial. And once you're 30, you could be an army nurse. Unfortunately, you had to be married, but there was a need for nurses. So she kind of got through the system and she headed to Washington to become an army nurse during the Civil War. I think it's funny that one of the other, quote, rules was that you be plain of face. (laughs) (laughs) You're to be respectable, like you had to have a sponsor. You Mm -hmm. had to be 30. You had to be plain of face and you had to be married Um, She was 50% qualified, but I want you to note there was no requirement for any nursing courses at all because of 19th century medicine. I don't know how many women, I mean, husbands were going to war. Women had to stay back and take care of their families. So that's why there was a lack of people volunteering that there's nobody in that demographic that can go. So Louisa was ordered to report to the Union Hill Hospital in Washington, D.C., kind of suddenly in a rush. One day she gets a note. Hey, your train's tomorrow morning. Like, whoa, holy for holy. (laughs) Everyone gave her warm clothes, cash, snacks. Um, She herself supplied herself with paper and pencils to write soldiers' letters for them, uh, a couple of books maybe to read to the men, and a whole bunch of courage. She had no idea what to expect. And she described the scene when she got to Washington, D.C. as absolute madness, just chaos. She was so nervous about all this bustle, and honestly, the sheer ratio of men to women was very intimidating. So she was given a room to stay in and immediately was put in charge of a ward full of about 40 soldiers who were just ill. And I say just, it's not as if she had a bottle of NyQuil or pharmaceuticals in her pocket, but at least this was a familiar family sickness type of nursing. She'd seen it before. You could put a wet rag on their head. You could change their bedclothes. You could do some things that you were a little more familiar with. But three days later, the hammer fell. She was involved at that point in holding the hands of men who were having body parts amputated. She was washing the bodies of men who had injuries. You know, she was washing their wounds. Now, this is a woman who's probably never seen male parts. And she's having to just get in there and get them clean. It must have been um, so confusing for her. She felt obligated and, and driven to do this work. But on the other side, it's like, holy cow, that's what it looks like? <laughs> <laughs> I uh, was not 100% sure that I felt that way, but I guess that is an initiation for a 30-year-old New England spinster. You're right. right. Um, The bad part about the amputations, well, there's many bad parts, but the worst part, I think, is that it was all done without anesthetic because there wasn't any available. Mm -hmm. The doctors, Louisa felt, were working hard, but were awful callous. But then if you think about it, they kind of had to be, to do what they had to do to get people to survive. You have to just be kind of ruthless, especially when you know you don't have any anesthetic. So your yeah. goal is to just be fast. Well, mm-hmm. she took to the work, surprisingly, all of it. The, the heartbreak and the fear, the fatigue, her own and everyone's, all the suffering that she worked so hard to alleviate. She really felt like she was being valuable. Um, one thing all of this took from her and in fact, took from a lot of people who saw the returning soldiers is that notion that this was some kind of easy solution to the conflict. You know, there seemed to be 
And we saw it in Gone with the Wind, too, this kind of knights and yelling sort of vision of war on both sides. Mm -hmm. We're going to show up in our outfits and like, they're going to run because we're so dangerous. But the reality, just as noble, of course, but really showed her the high price that these men were paying for their principles. And it made her respect their service in a way she hadn't before. Oh, yeah, definitely. She did meet one man that she had a connection with. He was going to die. She knew that. He knew that, but he was still had such a good personality. She said he seemed to cling to life as if it were rich in duties and delights. And he had learned the secrets of the content. That's what she felt about this man. But days later, she was holding his hand as he died. He was holding her hand so tight that she had to kind of pry his fingers off to get her hand out. She took a ring off his hand that his mother had given him and cut some of his hair so that she could mail it back to his mother in Virginia. But to make this connection in such a short period of time and then to say goodbye and watch this man die kept reminding me of Clara Barton, you know, out in the field and, and holding these soldiers' hands as they died. She wrote in her letter home about this particular man that one of the doctors sardonically said that that guy is going to have a hard time because he's for the chop, but he's so strong that he is going to fight and it is going to take him longer to die than a regular man. He seemed so strong and Louisa kind of avoided him because, you know, it's awkward. You you don't want to be the one, although the doctors told her it was her responsibility to tell him he was going to die, which I thought was like weaselly of them. <laughs> um, uh, but when she finally asked him if she could sit there for a while and talk to him, he started to cry. And he goes, that's what I've been wanting all along. And I've just been afraid to ask for it. It started it started out awful tearful. In fact, I feel the tears coming now because uh-huh. he was trying to be so brave for everyone around him. He was kind of self-sacrificing, just like Louisa had been her whole life. So I don't wonder that they, they had a connection. Well, one day, though, one of the doctors was cutting through the back staircase and found Louisa sitting there burning with fever. She was trying to cool her face against the stair rail and the walls that were made of metal because she was so feverish. She was not looking good. She was not herself. She was delirious. Typhoid pneumonia is what she had, which is spread by contaminated food or water. And at the time, the fatality rate was very high, very high indeed. She was in great danger. And the hospital wrote to her home for someone from her family to come quick because it could be the end. And Papa came to get her or say goodbye to her. Um, He did end up taking her home and it was another eight weeks before she was better at all. Yeah, she was just in bed with high fever and body pain and cough and delirium. The doctors had cut her hair off um, as part of her treatment. I, I, I could never figure this out. Is it to lessen the fever? Well, I think so. They did that with the Romanoff sisters, too. There's okay. famous pictures of they got typhoid and their hair was all cut off. I think okay. it's just a matter of bringing the fever down. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay, good. Then I did understand it. Yeah. And they gave her a medication that was standard at the time, but it was a mercury compound. And this is what she's taking to get over this typhoid at home. But she couldn't even sit up for weeks. She had all these hallucinations. Once you sort of understand, like she's back in the hospital and she's late for work. We all have had that dream to some degree. Also, the clear and definite delusion that she was married to a Spanish man. Where did that go from? Was it Rodrigo? 
<laughs> I don't know. It was a very strangely specific dream. Well, um, it was shortly after she could sit up at all that some newspaper editors approached her about serializing and expanding some of her letters home from the hospital. I'm sure that Papa had shared those around in his literary group, you know, and the news got out that here was a picture of the Civil War that had never been seen before. When these came out in the newspapers, they came out to great reviews. People could not get enough of the realism. It was just a shockingly new sort of literature. And again, this is another genre switch for her. Before she went away, she was writing the romances and the thrillers. And now she's writing first-person narratives. Total switch. Louisa continued, once she was better, a different kind of war work at home, uh, making supplies in particular for, as they say, the colored 54th Massachusetts Regiment. Also, tellingly, afterward, raising money for their orphans and their widows, and working with a woman who ran literacy courses for these soldiers to publish their letters home. How about this for a new view of what's happening at the war, serialized in an anti-slavery newspaper? She also wrote, well, it was considered to be radical articles about integration and the evils of slavery. So that kind of war work you can do from home without the chance of catching typhoid. What a great contribution, too, mm -hmm. to get the word out about what was really happening. And it wasn't, you know, this dream fairy tale. Oh, the boys are at war. Bloody and awful and painful. And it was war. <laughs> that was that was deep, Susan. <laughs> Ooh, put me in one of those salons. <laughs> anyway, more seriously, her nursing experience got her another gig. Uh, her family name also got her another gig because it seems like Alcott slash uh, May is pretty respectable around these parts. She got hired for a year's trip to Europe as a young lady invalid's companion. It was the daughter of a very wealthy Bostonian and his son. So it was a brother and a sister traveling. And Louisa's job was going to be to care for the sister, you know, to be her companion, to bring her things when she needed them, to help her get around and, and see Europe, you know, as she was doing it. It was a pretty good opportunity. So the spoiled and indolent nature of her charge sort of absolutely ruined the European dream for Louisa. There were a lot of promenades. There's a lot of napping, seems like, a lot of assorted water drinking, sulfurous, lithium, all kind of mineral waters. I don't know how many mineral waters you could take <laughs> <laughs> before you were all done. But then she met Ladislas Wisniewski, 12 years younger than she, who she always called Laddie. I think that's a good name. And there was, what would you even say, a flirtation? She called it, quote, a little romance with Laddie. There you go. Yeah. In that same journal entry, she has things scratched off after it, like physically scratched off, ripping the paper. So we know that she called it a little romance with Laddie. <laughs> That's all we know. Well, so she said that she wanted to go home. You know, they left Laddie after the romantical situation and went on their way. And she's like, I'm going to come home. I can't take this. It's just such a letdown or whatever. And Papa had sent her some money so she could pad out her trip right at the end after she'd left her post, maybe get value out of being over there, see some of the sites for yourself. And that was a good thought. That was a good sentiment, I thought. Mm -hmm. And what to our wondering eyes should appear at the train station in Paris? It's Laddie. And the two set off for a two-week stay 
together in Paris. Well, good for her. If so, you know. Yep. A little romance with Laddie. That's all we should probably say. Because then we don't know anything else. Mm -mm. (laughs) We don't know anything else. But um, in the later story she wrote that involved this period of her life, she wrote, what a surprise. Like, Kel Surprise, really? How did he know out of of all the trains in all the towns? (laughs) I chanced to meet your one train at the right time. Like, yeah, okay. We are not buying what you are particularly selling right there. But that's okay. She tried to pawn it off, too, as she was 12 years older than him. So it was a perfectly respectable relationship that they could be traveling around together because, you know, she was so much older. Okay. Okie dokie. So this laddie was the later model for Lori in Little Women. So it was great, great, great affection, but maybe not true love because they did say goodbye in Paris. And she went to London for a couple more months where her connections there gave her a very good time indeed. I'm happy to say that she had a good time. Do people still do that thing where you go to a faraway place and stay with people for weeks on the strength of a mutual acquaintance? I would like that, I think. I think I would too. Do we have any mutual acquaintances listening right now? <laughs> it was like to have, you know, a couple of women come stay with them in their castle somewhere. That'd be awesome. I would love that. A week here with one family off to a country house. Yeah. We'll record episodes of the podcast at your house. How exciting would that be? <laughs> Let's see if there's any bites. We're selling that, Susan. We are selling that. Yeah, that's right. So uh, Louisa came home to the realization that no one had bothered to breadwin since she left. She's been gone a year, and it's lucky that there was no electricity or cable or city <laughs> water because all those would have been cut off months ago. And they had taken out a loan to send her that money to stay longer in Europe. This was not money Papa had got by public speaking, like they lied at her in the letter. Uh, so who had to pay all this? Including the money they sent her as a gift. It is Grindstone Lady. I will tell you, she could charge lots more money for her stories now. So that's good. And all the genres were 10 times more lucrative than they used to be. So there's that. But it seems like, hi, welcome back. Here, Here's your harness. Please put it back on. That's right. Let's write some more bodice rippers, you know, some more mysteries, some more intrigue, some more deception, some more passion, some more hashish use. This is how wild these stories were getting. There's drug use in them. In secret chambers, it sounds like Fifty Shades of Grey. <laughs> Well, my goodness. She also wrote travelogues more innocently that um, were kind of a big hit, too. (laughs) That didn't involve any chambers or hashish. (laughs) Well, a canny publisher had approached Bronson offering to publish his book of philosophy. And you will read that it was sort of a deal with the devil that... Bronson's book would get published if he would pressure his daughter to write a book. And I don't actually think it got to that point. Um, Bronson actually was getting a lot more respectable. Society's finally catching up to him, kind of. Woo, finally. And um, he was making some money. And it's perfectly legitimate that his book would have been published on its own. But if you could convince her to write a girl's book for me, a girl's novel, like a couple hundred pages worth of that realism like she did in the hospital sketches, I'd really appreciate it. Wink, wink. 
So it was a twofer for the publisher. At first, Louise is like, I, I can't write for girls. This is, you know, juvenile work. I don't know. I wasn't a girly girl. It, it's the only way to put it. I don't know what her words were. Right. But she was the kid that was playing outside and getting dirty and rough and tumble and running. Remember the running? Lots of running. She's not exactly seeing herself as a novelist. She had tried a novel once, had even published it. Moods. It had been called and it had been sold okay, but it had been so chopped up and agonized over that even she wasn't that proud of it. And it had had mixed reviews is the nice way to put it. And then here comes old dad with the promise of glory. And his hand out to his cash cow. Was that too mean? <laughs> I'm not too happy with him. Please, oh, please, no. oh, please, he said, though it should be noted that Bronson never actually said please. Come <laughs> home and write the man his book, is what he said. So she did. She headed back to Orchard House and she sat down and she began work on what we now know as Little Women. So let us leave Louisa at her little half moon desk in her garret room. When we come back, we will see... What has she wrought? We are back. Louisa sat down at her desk in Orchard House and in only 10 weeks wrote the over 400 pages of the first draft of her most famous book of all time, Little Women, the story of four sisters growing up during the Civil War. It's a very thinly veiled autobiography in a lot of parts. And you should note that Mr. March, the father, is off as a chaplain in the Civil War until the very end of the book. Take that papa (laughs) (laughs) well she made him a chaplain i don't know how he felt about that (laughs) well he was too old to have gone as a soldier i think it was that was a practical um narrative device but also the father being gone serves the story because most fathers of the time would have been the bedrock for the family to lean upon not hers of course but it was necessary to actually remove the fictional man from the story in order to accomplish the same need for self-reliance that they came by naturally at the Alcott house. That's right. Because the father was essentially gone. (laughs) Yes. So she thought it was a boring exercise at first, I think, piecing together stories. She was quoted as saying, our experiences may prove interesting, though I doubt it. (laughs) <laughs> she, she would call it moral pap for the young so she was really into this and it just goes to show you you never know really because the book about meg joe beth and amy which ended right after meg and her husband i won't say his name for spoiler purposes 
um, got engaged. <laughs> well, I want everyone to at least listen to Little Women. I mean, so much of Louise's life you'll see in that book. Mm-hmm. Now that you know the story, it'll be kind of right. exciting to go back and listen. But anyway, uh, right after Meg got engaged is where the book ended. And it was a giant, giant hit. And in a month, they were already in a second edition. So readers were absolutely in love with those characters who... Unlike so much of the moral pap for the young that um, Louisa hated so much, these characters weren't perfect. And they talked like people actually talk. What a novel idea. She had May create four illustrations for the book, which very sweet. May is the artist. And she did something really smart. She retained the copyright on the novel. She sold the publishing rights, but she owned the work. And that was going to be the smartest thing she ever did in her entire life. That was very good. And I also think that was pretty uncommon at the time. Mm -hmm. So the book went out to rave reviews from all and sundry, but (laughs) there was a caution. Don't put this in a Sunday school library because this is not a Christian book, which I disagree strongly that this is not a Christian book. From the outset, this is an extremely Christian book. Do you not agree? No. (laughs) Uh, So much that I had forgotten. Upon rereading, it's strange to me that people were commenting on how it didn't have a moral. Like, the whole thing was one. As far as I'm concerned, we open with being unselfish at Christmas. Mm -hmm. We go right into Pilgrim's Progress. I'm not sure what the qualifier is. Maybe it wasn't considered a Christian novel because it wasn't like the Christian novels of the time. You know, there was no chapter and verse, really, and there's no sermon. Um, But they were doing what they, as transcendentalists, were raised to do, you know, and living the best life that they could. Well, I mean, almost the very first thing you see is them putting all their breakfast in a basket and putting on all their clothes and going to help the Hummels. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but that's not necessarily a Christian thing. You would do that and you're not a Christian. Well, I don't know, but I'm just saying they're they're all like, it's not moral. Oh, it doesn't, I see. It doesn't moral have a moral. Part. And I'm like, that's about as moral as you can get. If there's yeah. someone suffering and you have the means to help them, well, put it in a basket. <laughs> Bring it over. <laughs> Well, anyway, so there's that. But notices and sales were so good that the publisher begged her to write a sequel immediately. And so she did. Both books came out within a year. That blew my mind because she wrote a couple drafts and she's writing longhand. She's not dictating or typing really fast on a computer. She's writing these out with a pen and ink. You know, she had to keep dipping into the well. Wow. I don't know. I think longhand writing is faster for me. Oh, not for me. Oh, I have carpal tunnel. That's my problem. Ah. Well, um, the sequel is called Good Wives, and it was out by the spring, having been written in only five weeks. And Good Wives starts with preparations for Meg's wedding and goes on to the end. And if you're confused by this... Nowadays, at least in America, the two books are nearly always put together and simply called Little Women. Well, and they say that in the book, don't they? I mean, my copy has it, book one and book two. Yeah, but it's not called book two, Good Wives, I don't think. Oh, I see. They just say second volume, mm-hmm. which means nothing to the modern reader. No. <laughs> well, she said it was easier to write this time because she knew the marches now. They were her friends. And it was more a matter of letting them out 
than anything that creative. I think mm-hmm. that is adorable. Yeah. Well, she had to work through it with the first novel. In the first version of the Little Women, the original one, her publisher said it was dull. And so she had to go back and rework her characters and make them more caricature-ish, I think, you know, and give them really specific things that were different about each one so that they could all, you know, work together as a unit as a different finger, I guess. As a <laughs> what? Like, like a hand. You oh, know, like okay. A different, like a finger. <laughs> I was like, work There's mommy's the a... thumb, and Joe is Joe's the middle finger, and <laughs> <laughs> that's true. And and Beth, Beth is the pinky. Oh, and the ring finger that would be Amy because it's what holds the rings and is fancy and pretty stuff. Oh, I'm I am actually going to disagree with you. No, I think the okay. ring finger is Beth because the ring finger is the heart of the house, and that's where you put your your ring to symbolize okay. closest to your heart. And I think okay. Amy is the pinky, which is little and relatively useless, <laughs> and also stands for refinement, like when you pick up a teacup. Oh, I like that. Oh dear, we're not going to come to a consensus. <laughs> I like them both. <laughs> well, so when that book came out, just bam, instant fame. Anyone who had the slightest pretense of maybe knowing her from someplace found a reason to call. Strangers began knocking at her door. Fan mail and complaints about who Joe marries, <laughs> which Louisa had put in there perversely because the publishers wouldn't allow Joe to stay a spinster like Louisa wanted. Um, anyway, bags of those things filled the post office. She also turned out a book called Old Fashioned Girl, which I hadn't read until researching this show. Although in its day, it was just as famous and applauded as Little Women. And that one is super moral, I think. It's all about a poor relation, i.e. Louisa, <laughs> who is daily and intimately acquainted with a set of her rich relatives who are perhaps a little shallow and by her influence and her example and the friends she has in town that are all women making it on their own she changes the rich family into benevolent charitable glorious people so that's kind of like Anne of Green Gables no she changes everybody around her with her demeanor oh yeah I guess so yeah so that one is a little bit more it's hard to swallow, honestly. I went back and reread it and I was rolling my eyes. So I can't even imagine what you were doing. So to get away from her admirers and rest and really give herself a decade long deserved break, I think, Louisa, which I actually wrote Joe. That's funny. <laughs> which is a thing that both Louisa and Anna did all the time. Anna referred to herself as Meg sometimes too, by the way. That's cute. Louisa and her sister May and a friend went to Europe the right way with cash and luxury (laughs) and fame that followed her here too, but it was less exuberant, more full of perks like room upgrades than people wanting a lock of your hair like at home. (laughs) (laughs) So that is the good kind of fame. She began suffering, though, from severe leg pain, which was diagnosed as inflammation of the periosteum, which is another thing I learned this month because my husband broke his rib while snowboarding. 
because he is a grown man who should probably be flinging himself on the frozen ground. <laughs> um, it is the outer membrane of your bones that does have nerves in it. This is why a broken rib causes you to scream. <laughs> so that particular part of her bone was evidently giving her grief and she was prescribed opium not available to my husband <laughs> and the doctor incorrectly attributed this to calomel poisoning mercury poisoning because of how she had been treated for her illness during the war it was often frankly worse than whatever it was used to treat it would cause your teeth to be loose <laughs> if abused it could cause your mind to lose its functions they're called Mad Hatters for a reason because they had mercury poisoning. There you go. Mercury took the blame for any number of symptoms as a convenient scapegoat for I don't know disease. I don't know disease. Yes. While she was away, Anna's husband died. He left her with two small children and no money. Louisa was on this trip and all she really wanted to write was letters. She didn't want to write any more novels, but uh, Anna was short on cash and feeling as though she was the only person that could do anything. She began work on yet another novel during her trip called Little Men. Little Men is my favorite one of Louisa May Alcott's stories. I stand by it. I will defend it. It is my ultimate favorite. I like it so much better than Little Women. It's the story of Joe and her husband, Mr. Bear, running a school called Plumfield, which was kind of a play on Fruitlands. Pointedly not that autobiographical since no one was starving and everyone was happy. <laughs> Maybe this was just the fantasy of how things might have turned out for the family had Bronson been stronger. One thing there is a lot of focus on in Little Men is food and the availability of food and lots of descriptions of food. So in that respect, I think there was a little element of fantasy involved. The whole family grew up so vegetarian. And once Louisa had a bit of money, it was like, meat, 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 meat. Like, <laughs> it was like, bring me the roast beef. So anyway, um... Louisa came home to unimaginable fame. <laughs> Once upon a time, an editor named James Fields had told her that she couldn't write. She should stop trying. And here's $40 to start a school with because I know your father. Why don't you pay me back if you ever make a pot of gold? And, you know, he thought that $40 was kiss goodbye into the air. Might as well set it on fire. She made a point when she got back from her Roman adventure to pay him back and say, the pot of gold has arrived. Here's your $40 back. This was like a decade later. <laughs> In your face. Yeah. Wow. We all have those situations where we'd like to be able to do that. That'd be cool. <laughs> and, and I'm just sitting here thinking of my person. Oh, <laughs> okay yes let's all take a moment to think about our persons i think we all have one so louisa was living a little bit of each of our dreams about now but fame has its price she often had to resort to subterfuge to hide from her fans who just poured off the train of a saturday and walked over to pay their respects like she's been waiting for them her whole life <laughs> she kept a feather duster by the door so she could pretend to be her own servant in fact um but her photo was out there now and a lot of times she just had to run out the back door and hide in the woods which is a scenario that she wrote in the sequel to little men called joe's boys when all the little men have grown up 
<laughs> Joe in the book has become a famous author and it's all the tribulations of people knocking on the door. Hey, um, I've caught grasshoppers on all these famous people's lawns. Can I catch a grasshopper on your lawn? <laughs> um, can I have something old of yours to make a rag rug out of? Like all these crazy cockamamie requests people do. So that is a little autobiography in this period of her life. She cranked out the titles. In the next 10 years, she had 54 novels or poems or stories published 54 in 10 years wow. that's quite a pace her uh, method was actually very similar to a lot of writers now she'd get the idea then she kind of procrastinate then she kind of plot it out and then this surge would hit her and she would just dive in into what she called a vortex and she would just write and write and write until she was physically exhausted, but the novel was finished. And then she'd take to bed for a couple of weeks and recuperate. <laughs> Repeat. <laughs> I always like that take to bed. I highly approve of taking to bed occasionally. Just take to bed. <laughs> but she was slowly getting over her imposter syndrome. I'm surprised it took her this long. She was slowly beginning to believe she deserved her fame and even more slowly starting to believe that she was worthy of treating herself to the most minor of luxuries like a new dress. New. Like the guy makes it new from <laughs> a bolt of cloth. To her, that was unimaginable throwaway money luxury. And at last, she could do it quite easily. She bought her sister Anna a house and nursed her mother until she died. She sent May to Europe, where May became the only woman to have work shown at the Paris Salon. She got in over Mary Cassatt. That <laughs> is how good May's painting had become due to the largesse of her sister paying for so many lessons. She's still taking care of everybody. And I'm glad to say that at least May thanked her for it. May said, and I quote, unromantic as it sounds to say so, money has done what affection alone could never do. And you have delighted in making us all happy in our own way, though much of your own life and health has been sacrificed in doing it. We can never be grateful enough. That's wonderful that she could see that. Yes. Well, it just, I mean, the kids all, they grew up in such hardship that, Unlike their mother who had grown up, you know, she had a little bit of entitlement. These guys didn't. They worked for everything they had and they knew what Louisa was doing for them. So that's that's great. When she was 46 in 1879, Massachusetts passed a law that said that women could vote in local elections. And Louisa was the first woman to register to vote in Concord. She rallied all the women in the town that she could to do the same. And a year later, she voted in her first election. Yay! Well, and I'm sorry to say that she encountered some serious resistance and everybody had an excuse. My husband won't let me. I have guests. I am not comfortable with this. Blah, blah, blah. And Louisa was so irritated at them. She's like, I could drive these timid sheep to that fatal spot where they seem to expect some kind of awful doom. She was so mad. Like, we have a chance and you're not going to take it up. This is this is our time. But yet prominent women of the town are like, it's not very ladylike to express your preferences in this way. And so they counteracted all of her fire with their like ice and really cooled down a lot of her drive to register mm -hmm. women to vote. So really only 20 women voted in that first election. And sort of to make it worse, right after the women voted, the men abstained from voting because um, 
they didn't want to be seen as voting on women's issues. So it really even tainted women being able to vote even further by delegitimizing that process. It's kind of heartbreaking, really. I know. Let's can we just like focus on the facts that she got to vote? <laughs> I know the realities of it is are there. These women's conditioning was just too strong, I think. It's not necessarily their fault. And it would take another 40 years to get women the right to vote in general elections. So what I'm taking from this, and here's a positive for you, is that the Alcots were far, far ahead of society again. It looks like 20 to 40 years ahead of where people needed to be not to be shocked by things that they did. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why um, they just Yeah. Were. Over the years, this educator started to adopt things that Bronson had introduced. He was like, you know, doing a mental checklist. Like, okay, I said to do that 20 years ago and you guys are just doing it now. I mean, we wouldn't have physical education classes if it wasn't for him. Well, we might have them, but he's the guy that started them. It's a big deal. Right. Louisa began to suffer with extremely poor health, which she and her doctors still attributed to the past mercury poisoning, which was probably kind of a benefit, really. It was kind of gratifying to Louisa to have sacrificed on the altar all I had to give for my country type of thing. So it was for a purpose, this pain. Modern analysts seem to think she actually might have had lupus and there would have been no benefit to tell her that she had a disease that had no cure, even mm -hmm. if they had known it. So there's a small, tiny blessing that at least she thought that she was still sacrificing for the greater good, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. May had gotten married in Europe. She's living there. She has a baby. She names her Louisa. They call her Lulu right from the start. Everybody's excited, except May dies shortly after the baby was born, like a lot of women did from puer I can never pronounce this word. Puerperal fever. The same thing that killed Henry VIII's wife, Jane Seymour. And a lot, a lot, a lot of other women. It was devastating to Louisa, and when the news came that May's husband was going to honor her dying wish and allow Louisa to raise the child, Louisa May Alcott became a mother to an infant at the age of 47. That's an infant who has her own name. <laughs> I think that is as common as could be, though, the way these people keep naming babies after themselves. I know. Well, that's an honor to have a baby named after you. Yeah. At this point... Louisa and now Lulu were dividing their time between houses in Boston and houses in New York. Her writing was starting to slow down a little bit, but she didn't really financially have to keep up the pace that she'd had before. So it, it makes sense. I mean, she's getting into her 50s. And the last book she wrote was a collection of stories that she had written down for Lulu called A Garland for Girls. And I think that is just a perfect bookend. At the front end of your career, you have Flower Fables, a book of stories that you once told a little girl named Ellen Emerson. And at the end of your career, you have A Garland for Girls, a book of stories that you told to Lulu. I don't think she could have scripted that better herself. Eight years of family life with this edition was an immense joy. And of course, all her responsibility, like we knew it would be. Notably, at the end of her life had 10 servants... When she wrote Little Women, she had never had a housekeeper in her life. So she made sure that the Marches had one. Well, and that was a measure of respectability, too, because I think she felt it because that was the dividing line between genteel poverty and poverty. 
mm-hmm. is the having of the, I guess they'd call her a maid of all work, but Hannah in Little Women is more like one of the family at this point. Yeah. Well, her health was failing, Louisa, and she took the time to burn or edit her papers. No like. But you no know, like. her prerogative, her prerogative, but she got to shape her narrative, which we don't all get to do. So there you go. She got her affairs in order. Her papa, too, was very sick, very sick indeed, bedridden. And when she went to visit him for the last time, she asked him, what are you thinking of, papa? And he said, up there, you come too. And then she shook her head and said, I wish I could. So Louisa herself fell quite ill in another house and was bedridden and unconscious. She had had a stroke while unconscious with Anna right by her side when word came that Papa had died. Louisa never knew it. She never regained consciousness. And Anna had gone away to make arrangements for Papa's funeral when Louisa herself died two days after her Papa, with whom she had shared a birthday. And Louisa was only 55, and there was no one with her when she died. On her nightstand when she died was a pen, a needle and a thread, and a little dress that she was making for a poor family's baby. That's what she was working on. And she was also working on another story. It was on her desk. It was unfinished. She was buried in Concord in the Sleepy Hollow Cemetery at the foot of her mother and father's graves at her request, quote, so that I might take care of them in death as I did in life. That's lovely. That is the end of the life of Louisa May Alcott. Mm-hmm. I do want to tell you that Lulu went to live with her father. That was the first thing that I was concerned about is what happened to Lulu. She went to Switzerland and lived with her father. So, And she lived to a very old age. So Lulu kept going. All right. And now it is time for media. And as usual, we will start with books. I would say much smaller <laughs> list of books than usual, but not so much, really. <laughs> I had a lot. Yeah, but I'm not going to say a lot. I'll, again, <laughs> put them on the Pinterest because there's a lot. So a couple of biographies that I liked. Um, there are two books by Madeline Stern, Louisa May Alcott, A Biography, and also Louisa May Alcott, From Blood and Thunder to Hearth and Home. I liked those. She actually is the editor of several recent collections of um, Alcott's works. The biography that I liked the best was Louisa May Alcott, The Woman Behind Little Women by Harriet Risen. I thought that was a pretty good one. Um, I also, did you have any other clear biographies, just straight out biographies? Yeah, well, is this a straight out biography? I'm not sure. There's Marmee and Louisa, The Untold mm-hmm. Story of Louisa May Alcott and Her Mother by Eve LaPlante. Yep, I had that one as well as Eden's Outcast, the story of Louisa May Alcott and her father by John Matson. Isn't that funny? There's one about Marmy and there's one about the dad. So that's mm-hmm. good. Like a little balance. Yeah, that's what I thought. I, I liked I was comparing and contrasting. Also, there is a collection called Behind a Mask, the Unknown Thrillers of Louisa May Alcott. So if you would like a little glimpse into like what is happening, like if you're familiar with her stories for girls, this is going to blow your mind a little bit. 
I think. (laughs) (laughs) I also had another collection. Uh, It's called Louisa May Alcott, Her Life, Letters, and Journals. Um, Louisa May Alcott is given credit because these are actually some of her letters and her writing, but the editor and the commentator is Edna Cheney. I thought this was cool. I am not a quilter, but I know that a lot of you are. Louisa May Alcott, Quilts of Her Life, Her Work, and Her Heart by Terry Clothier Thompson is the directions for a Louisa May Alcott quilt. There's all these squares. Yes, very. it was very nice. It was lovely. So there's all the squares are based on things in her life. So ah, that was special. If somebody quilts, which I don't, but still. (laughs) So I would encourage you to read, if you have not, Little Women, of course, and Little Men. And then it depends on your interest level. If you want to go further with Joe's Boys, I love Little Men. It's my favorite book of hers of all time. I would say Eight Cousins is definitely worth a read. Those are my favorites. And you can go as deep. I mean, there's a lot of material out there. So you can go as deep as you want to. The Transcendentalist Wild Oats will give you a view as to what was happening over at Fruitlands. And you might as well go whole hog and read Pilgrim's Progress online. So we'll give you links to that. And also the full text of the letters and journals are on Gutenberg.org. So that is something else you can pick up. Should I admit that I only got through three of the books before my eye rolling was giving me a headache? <laughs> and actually, Little Women, I listened to the audiobook. I mean, I have the book. Okay, when I was 12, my mother gave me this beautiful copy of Little Women. She said it was her favorite book of all time, and she really wanted me to have it and read it. And I was a fairly prolific reader, but it was my mom, and there's like all these old-fashioned girls on the cover, and I didn't want to read it. So I kind of put it away, and eventually I did read it, and I thought it was lovely. So I appreciated that she had it. I still have it. It's on my mantelpiece that particular copy there is a price tag on the inside let me open it up here from g fox and company which is a department store in hartford of 3.99 for this beautiful edition of little women (laughs) what year is it from um it is a junior library edition uh copyright 1947 Hmm. cool yeah no it's a pretty book which is why i have it on my mantle (laughs) but right now it's not my favorite You don't think so? You know, there are parts of Little Women that I just loved. I loved how she described the breakfast that they packed up and took to the Hummels. I loved how Meg went to the ball and Mm -hmm. um, all the girls were sort of frenemies or whatever. Yeah. Then one of them ended up being one of her best friends later as a married woman. So that worked out. I don't know. I loved the little glimpses of life that seemed normal then that is surprising to us now, like the fact that a lobster is an embarrassing thing to carry home. (laughs) Like if you carried your own groceries home, you were like, oh, no. Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. And I liked Amy's failed picnic. There were lots of things I liked. All the whole Lori storyline just can't get enough of. So there's a lot of little women that I love. There's just I had forgotten so much about the and that is why girls, we must always trust to the father above. I don't know. There's a lot of like Wait, did you just put that in for no reason? (laughs) Was that there when I read it as a kid? I don't remember that part. I think at this point in my life, I like the idea of Little Women. I like the feeling that it gives me because it was a book that connects me to my mom. But actually reading it or listening to the audiobook, which is what I ended up doing, I don't know. It just wasn't what I remembered. Okay. I'm still at 80%. I'll give it a solid B. 
There is a graphic novel called Meg, Joe, Beth, and Amy, and it is for the modern day. Um, it is for best friends that are going through a journey on their own. So that's really cool. That's out and available. That's a lot of books, but that's all. That's the ones I had. Okay. Websites? I would say that most of what I had, except for org, are links to reading material. I guess that's where my focus was this time. And org is a product of the Orchard House, which is where her museum is in Concord, Massachusetts. It's beautiful. And their website, I loved their virtual tour. There was audio to accompany it. And you could see in the rooms, you could see the little crescent desk that she wrote Little Women at. Mm. They did a really good job on the virtual tour. So yeah, I I thought it was really funny because just last week in our private History Chicks Lounge group on Facebook, Katie Lane had asked for places to go in the Boston area. And somebody had suggested the Orchard House. And I was going to say something and I was like, oh, no, I better not (laughs) keep it to myself. (laughs) So there you go, Katie. And if you're up there in Concord, just keep going up to Harvard, Massachusetts, because Fruitlands is also a museum. It's not necessarily just about the transcendentalists that were there, but there's trails and programs and Native American programs and uh, a shaker museum within it. It looked like a really beautiful place to just go spend the day. So if you're up in that Boston, Concord area, head on up to uh, Harvard for the day. You know, we didn't mention about the Shakers. The Shakers <laughs> were another utopian community that was within striking distance of Fruitlands and much to everyone's jealousy, the Shakers were eating meat. The Shakers were prospering. The Shakers were warm and dry and had plenty of carpenters and people and a thriving community. Fruitlands did not. <laughs> All right. Now, as to movies, there are many from the silent movie era on. There are three sort of major ones that, and there will be four soon, major projects. But I would say the 1933 movie starring Katherine Hepburn as Joe is right on up there in quality. I really do like it. I like it too. I liked her as Joe. Uh, I don't know. I, I just don't think any of these movies did good in casting. No, no. And the older you get as to movies, the more theatrical convention you get. So you really have a lot of stage acting. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, if you know it's going to happen, you know, oh, but Papa, I don't want to marry him. You know, that kind of thing. But, you know, all their coaches came from the stage. So we haven't passed into natural acting yet. That's right. And uh, did we in 1949 with the one that started June Allison as Joe, (laughs) Peter Lawford as Lori, Liz Taylor as Amy, Janet Lee as Meg, Margaret O'Brien as Beth, and Mary Astor as Marmee. I'm going to say Margaret O'Brien, yes. Everyone else, what? <laughs> I know. It was like, hey, let's get all these big names together. People will flock to it. It's a beloved book. We'll make a ton of money. That's what that movie says to me. I think that's the least highly rated of these three in IMDb. The, I believe it. Yeah. And then the 1994 movie starring Winona Ryder, you know, stylistically speaking, I liked it. There's a lot of realism in this one that I really admire. I don't know. I don't know. Winona Ryder might just be too cute for Joe to me. Joe needed to be, as far as I'm concerned, and as far as the book was concerned, the man of the house. I mean, Joe is a stand-in for Louisa, who described herself as, I am more than half persuaded that I'm a man's soul put by some freak of nature into a woman's body. Hmm. 
that's how she described herself even. And, and Joe throughout the books is like, now that I'm the man of the house, now that father's away, I have to take care of the girls, you know, that kind of thing. Right. And you uh, thought Winona Ryder was too frail? I thought, yeah, I thought Winona Ryder did not exemplify the kind of take charge of the family that Joe was. Okay, I'll accept that. I think it's a beautiful movie to watch. And so. I think Meg was good. Mm-hmm. Um, I like Claire Danes, but I didn't think she was frail enough for Beth. <laughs> I agree with you on that one. I la- thought her acting was good, but then when I saw her, she's a sturdy person. Yeah, she wasn't like wayfish like I imagined Beth to be. Over on the recapery, we were watching uh, Sofia Coppola's Marie Antoinette with Kirsten Dunst. Kirsten Dunst, a few years younger, was in this movie as Amy. And it was kind of blowing my mind. I was like, oh, I'm not quite sure who you are right here. It was weird. I was like watching them the same week. <laughs> I think it is very interesting that, that her dimples are really one of her greatest assets in both of the parts. I think she did a great job. Of course, the first time I ever saw her was Interview with the Vampire, in which I thought, oh my gosh, this is an adult person in a child's body with this acting. I Mm -hmm. I was amazed. So Mm -hmm. I've always thought she was a good actor. And it's, you know, I don't mind Samantha Mathis' grown-up Amy either. I think she did so much better than Elizabeth Taylor. Take that to the bank, Samantha Mathis. So that's it on, on movies. There is an American Masters by PBS DVD out there. I got it from my library. It's Louisa May Alcott, Women Behind Little Women. It's based on Harriet Risen's book that we were just talking about in the book section. I thought it was a little hokey with the graphics, but as far as the content, they used actual dialogue from the writings. So the script was actually things that people had said. So I liked it for that. Okay, cool. Yeah, it was good. And you might know, because we are probably going to tell you over and over, that PBS Masterpiece has an upcoming Little Women miniseries, which we are going to cover over on The Recapery. Yay! Um, I believe it begins here in the United States on May 13th, which is Mother's Day. Nice. And I don't know how fast we're going to be able to get that up, but we'll be covering that. Orchard House, the museum, they had put together a documentary I'm Louisa May Alcott from the museum, and it's going to be shown in conjunction with this miniseries, but it's a local listings kind of situation. It's not like across the board, so you have to look locally to find it. But I saw the trailer for it, and it looked really good. It's so beautiful. Orchard House is gorgeous. Oh, good. Yep. And uh, that's all I got. All right. So in closing, why don't we do something a little different and leave you with a letter that Papa wrote to his own father-in-law on the very day of Louise's birth. It is with great pleasure that I announce to you the birth of a second daughter. She was born at half past 12 this morning on my birthday and is a very fine, healthful child. She has a fine foundation for health and energy of character. Abba inclines to call the babe Louisa May a name to her full of every association connected with amiable benevolence and exalted worth. I hope its present possessor may rise to equal attainment and deserve a place in the estimation of society. And I do believe, dear History Chicks listeners, that Bronson Alcott's dream has come true. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. If you liked what you heard today, please tell a few friends or leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes. The Pinterest board should be up and activated for your rabbit hole falling down pleasure. Here's something cool. A listener named Amber Tucker has created a History Chicks reading group over on Goodreads. 
This month, they are reading Nellie Bly, Daredevil, Reporter, Feminist by Brooke Kroger. So you should grab a copy of that book and head on over there and join everyone else in discussing it. And thanks so much to Amber Tucker for taking that on. We're very grateful. The end song for this episode is Daughters of History by Morning Spy. And tune in at the end for a sample of the random and rambling conversations that Susan and I often get into before we begin our serious recording. I did not drink the whole thing. I'm happy to report. We did not. Did we have a drink? I think if we had a drink, it was probably vodka and something. But um, we, I wanted Bloody Marys so badly, and we just, neither of us could be Alex to get out and go get the stuff. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Because <laughs> Bloody Marys go so well with chocolate. No, not chocolate. Deviled eggs. Think oh, about right. that combination. That's good. Oh my gosh. A, I don't drink Bloody Marys because I can't stand tomato juice. It's a consistency issue. I, it makes me ugh, gag. And <laughs> I think I think I've made myself clear on my feeling about deviled eggs. I love deviled eggs. I want somebody to make me a deep fried deviled egg. No chopped up eggs. Gross. I love how Bloody Marys look. I love when they like look like they're meal, you know, they got all that crap in them. All the vegetables and stuff. Like, oh, that would be so much fun to drink. I would love that. But I can't drink it. It just makes me gag. I think it's gross when they make it with clamato. I cannot take it. Clam juice. I would like to know what the juice is. I don't, I, that is not good. Fish water. No, thank you. No. Uh, nope. Or is nope. it pee or is it sweat? What is it? <laughs> Let's just say I am not a fan of random clam squeezins. I don't want to know. Except I will have to tell you, um, it's pronounced clamato. <laughs> tomato, tomato, clamato, clamato. Clamato. Whatever they're called. They can taste like pumpkin pie, but I ain't drinking the dirty clamatos. Clamato juice. It's the devil in the whiskey. It's the devil in the whiskey now.